welcome to the Scots Way podcast in collaboration with Edinburgh International Book Festival. And this is a partner podcast with the Celebrating Inclusion event at this year's festival. And I'm delighted to be joined by writers Ever Dundas and Julie Farrell, who have put together the Inclusion Guide. Hello, Ever and Julie. Hello. Um, so what can you tell us about the Inclusion Guide and the reasons for creating it? Ever, if you start, that'd be great. Sure. Um, it basically came from my experience since uh, my first novel, Goblin, came out in 2017. And there just been kind of tumbleweeds in the literary world when it came to, you know, discussion around disability and chronic illness, like at all, and also discussion around access in terms of um, events. And a big part of what's expected of writers is to do events. And that's also um, a big part of how we earn a living as well. So in terms of, you know, events not being accessible, I mean, it's it really kind of um, means that a lot of disabled writers end up struggling. So this was kind of a conversation that a lot of us were having kind of between each other, um, kind of about the struggles we're being having and difficulties with access and difficulties in having that conversation with organizations. We were constantly having to advocate for ourselves and, and it, it's not comfortable. And people, you know, just because you're disabled, you're not naturally like, a, you know, a self-advocate or like a kind of, you know, someone who's an activist, but you're kind of forced into that position. So it was just, at first it was kind of lonely, but things have kind of improved and there's a lot more kind of networks out there. So um, we're a bit more organized in terms of pushing for access, which is great. And all of us supporting each other, because we now have, I set up a Facebook group, Crip Collective. Um, so a lot of us kind of support each other via that. And there's the authors um, with disabilities and chronic illnesses, um, the Society of Authors group. So people really support each other with that. But in terms of like the inclusion guides, like it did come out of just like um, events access, just being really patchy, um, inconsistent and often just nothing, you know, just access just wasn't even thought about. So Julie and I kind of, I think Julie, we both kind of had this idea, I think ind individually kind of separately. And then we just came together and we're like, nobody's doing anything about this. So why don't we? And, and that's kind of where it was born from. And Julie, were your experiences similar? Yeah, um, I have a slightly different background in that um, I'd been working in publishing before I kind of became an author. So for me, I was working in, you know, um, marketing and events delivery primarily. And, um, you know, at that time, access just was never a priority. It was barely an afterthought. Um, which just, yeah, kind of at the time wasn't something that even then I particularly thought about um, and although I've always been disabled um, it really took me until I was about 30 before I had several diagnoses due to a breakdown in my health and kind of came to understand that all of these challenges that I'd never understood about myself through my life were related to various disabilities um, and yeah I kind of realized um, sort of when I was dealing with um, a more challenging time in my health at that point in time I kind of realized, wow, like these events really aren't accessible and this is something that we should be thinking about. And particularly with my experience and Ever's quite similar as well in that 
we sort of came to disability later in our life, or at least our awareness of it became much more solidified later on. And I think that it really shows that you just never know what's going on with a person. And like, we both look, you know, healthy. Um, we're very much people who have invisible illness, you know, um, but we both have chronic illness that has physical effects on us, uh, sensory issues, cog fog, these kind of things. And people make assumptions about your access needs, right? Um, and we were finding that just, yeah, so many events in literature just were not making making us and people like us feel welcome. Um, and yeah, having having I started a, an access consultancy myself back in 2018 um, when I kind of realized that I had needs myself. Um, and yeah, it, it just showed me that people were partly afraid because they didn't want to get it wrong and people obviously don't want other people shouting at them for getting it wrong and I think there's a fear of embarrassment there and just a, just a kind of lack of understanding as well about wider issues it's not just about can a wheelchair get in here and whilst that obviously is really important there's just so much else to think about it's very complex and very layered and that's why it's so important that it has to be integrated right at that first seed of an idea of an event you know it's got to be an integrated thing you know it's got to be part of the planning structure um, and that's that's why we yeah decided to make the guide and can you tell us exactly not exactly but kind of what the guide is what what kind of form it takes uh yes ever do you want to take that one <laughs> sure um yeah so the guide we basically wanted it to be extremely practical um and kind of easy for event organizers to use. So we've split up into two main sections, which is the first section about authors, or like it's mainly about author access, but obviously it can cover any kind of participant in events. Um, so the first section is participants, and the other section is um, looking at audience access. Um, and we also have it split up into in-person access, online access, and hybrid access. Um, and we look at kind of various aspects within that. So we have a kind of main checklist within those headings. So events organizers can go through and look at the checklist and see what they need to implement and what they can do. So it's quite practical. Um, and we also have, we worked with some fantastic um, disabled authors who were our consultants. So we kind of interviewed them and they kind of fed into the guide. So we have a lot of um, kind of personal experience from them, which I think really um, kind of, as well as the practical aspects, really supports the guide, supports what it is what we're trying to do and why. So we have like their personal experience of um, events access, which is often like really powerful quotes kind of scattered throughout the guide. Mm. We also have a few um, statistics here and there to kind of support what we're doing with the guide. Um, Kat Mitchell, um, did some fantastic research for us looking at various statistics and we've fed that into the guide. Um, and we also have a, a section as well about employing disabled staff because um, we think there needs to be better kind of representation um, and platforms for disabled people throughout the whole industry and, and we need disabled staff in there as well and they need to be supported. So we have a, a section on that too. So. It's quite comprehensive, and but also like um, I think really easy to use and really practical in terms of the checklist and what events organisers are looking for. And Julie, what has the reaction been like from events organisers to the guide? It's been amazing, to be honest. Um, I think better than we expected. Um, when we first announced, 
we had we were just inundated with the organization saying when can we get our hands on this and can we consult with you please which was just brilliant um, and we have been able to do a couple of consultations here and there um, you know we we did a, a big one with um, Edinburgh International Book Festival before we actually launched with inclusion um, and yeah there's there's just been such a kind of demand for it so obviously we're kind of saying to people right the pandemic isn't um, over particularly but even beyond that we really need to be looking at making things as accessible because we've you know we've proven now that we can do it um, and obviously online access is only one facet um, of provisions that we need to have kind of across the board moving forward but yeah it's um it, we've i mean we had so many sponsors reaching out as well to, to to fund us and support us to get the project off the ground and hopefully you know the the thirst for it hasn't died you know now that people are saying that we're out of the pandemic obviously we're not for disabled people um in particular but yeah and um, we've, we've kind of strived to make it as ever says um, appeal to both the kind of business end as well as the kind of like author end of things so we're, we're really looking at the whole spectrum of disability the whole spectrum of events provision from you know CEO organizers programmers um, right down to the the authors sitting on the panels and then the audience who are there to receive the event um, and yeah we hope that it you know we plan to revise it in a couple of years time and we hope that it's going to be a product that I say product it's obviously a free resource um, but yeah we, we hope that it's going to have a really long life the fact that we are going to build it into our website as well means that it's easy for us to kind of update it um, we're going to use our blog to spotlight disabled voices and to keep the conversation running and active about topical issues in the industry because we're only touching a tiny part of you know what needs to be huge wide systemic change um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're really kind of hoping that our, our sponsors and anybody that picks it up is going to really be paying attention and actually actioning the recommendations in the guide. And Eva, you've both mentioned uh, consulting, so it's not just a case of writing the guide and sending it out, you're actually physically going into places and being asked what could we do better, is that right? Yeah, um, I mean, given that it's just Julie and I, we do have a kind of limited capacity, yeah. especially at the minute while we're still working on the guide and, and getting that out in the world. And, and also we need time off. So we're hoping to get a bit of time off after the guide launches, but but we do offer uh, consultation, consultation packages. Um, as, as I say, though, they're not on offer at the moment, but if you keep an eye on like our website, and our social media and sign up for our newsletter and we can tell you a bit more about what is we offer you could also talk to edinburgh international book festival because we did a venue assessment and i think a, another couple of assessments for them um so they could tell you about what it's like to work with us um but we also at the moment will be putting up as part of the guide we'll be putting up a resources section on our website so there'll be various um, kind of disabled um, training and um, consultants kind of up on our resources section if you're after um, that as well as the guide. So, yeah. And we're going to talk about your launch in a moment, but I think this is maybe a good time for anyone listening or watching to find out where they can actually, you know, find out more and maybe sign up to the newsletter and all those things. How can they do that? Uh, yeah, if they go onto our website, which is www.inclusionguide.org, um, we have a newsletter sign up button right on the homepage. 
um, or the landing page. So if you just scroll down a little bit, you can you can do that. Uh, our newsletters are not the most prolific, which people that may appreciate. Um, but we we try to kind of get yeah, limit um, sending out our newsletters until we we've, we've got something to share, and and we have we are time limited <laughs> as well. But yeah, our Twitter as well is at Inclusion Guides. Uh, on Twitter. You can follow Eva and I on Twitter as well and we're always shouting about what we're doing and what we're getting up to. Um, and yeah, as we were saying, the guide is going to be integrated as live web pages on our website and that's going to be available at the time of the launch. We're getting a PDF design by Penguin Random House and they're doing an easy read version for us as well. Uh, we're looking into getting a um, BSL video produced as well, so BSL and audio, and also we're hoping to try and find um, somebody who can make a braille version of the guide for us as well. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to make it as accessible as possible, and when the PDF is um, available, that will be linked on the website as well, and it will be uh, navigable, so you can go to whichever section you want to kind of look at, um, just to make it a wee bit easier, hopefully. And we'll put the uh, all the relevant links on the post which accompanies this podcast as well, so people can uh, can find you. But the launch is at this year's Edinburgh Book Festival uh, with the event celebrating inclusion. Can you talk a bit about who is involved and what people can expect? Yeah, um, we're both really excited about this event. Actually, we've been planning this uh, for a few months with Kate. Uh, um, Edinburgh Book Festival, who does the business of book strands. And it's been wonderful working with her. She's been so enthusiastic and amazing. Um, and we've put together a, like a really cracking panel. Um, so it'll be me and Julie. And it's going to be chaired by Sinead Burke, um, who is a disability activist and founder of Tilting the Lens, which is an access consultancy. Um, and also she was just recently, you could have recently seen her on uh, the latest series of Dairy Girls, which was really cool. Um, it's great to see her on that. Um, and we've also got Jenny Kumar, who is there representing Literature Alliance Scotland, all the various members of um, the Alliance. And so she'll be talking a bit about what the guide means to the members and what they're after from the guide and how they'll implement it. We also have uh, Zahida Nabagareka, who's Head of Social Impact at Penguin, um, and she'll talk a bit about um, why Penguin have sponsored the guide and are publishing it and what that means to them and how they'll be using it. And we also have a very exciting um, poetry performance from Jeddah Pearl at the end of the, the launch event, which we're really excited about. And we also have a video reel, which we've been putting together with um, a few disabled authors kind of talking about um, what the guide means to them and how, how they think it'll change the industry. So. And this year's festival, again, is a hybrid festival. There's live events, but there's also online. Is your event going to be one of those online? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's live streamed and it'll be available on demand to watch until seven o'clock on Sunday, the 28th of August. Um, and it's pay what you can as well so that there is no cost barrier. It'll be live captioned. Uh, we'll have a BSL interpreter as well. Um, and we're also encouraging uh, the use of masks face masks and um, just because there's going to be a lot of clinically probably like or more vulnerable and, and at risk and um, people there from the disabled community and uh, so it's not 
it's not mandated, but it is it is encouraged and it'll be available on the door. Now that's that's all that's good to know. So a more general question, do you think the book world, be it publishing events or other aspects, is becoming more diverse and inclusive? Julia, you answer that if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, I think so. Um, I think it's still, you know, diversity and inclusion have sort of been the buzzwords of the last like five years. Um, and we did see a real push, um, particularly, I think about three, four years ago, there was a real push um, to support, you know, writers of colour um, or global majority writers um, to getting into the industry and getting representation, which was fantastic. And now disability sort of started to become a bit of a buzzword as well. And obviously these marginalised identities, they intersect. Um, and I think publishing does have a bad habit of really kind of pigeonholing <laughs> identities um, because it just makes it easier for it. Um, and I think there's a real, there's a real passion for actually changing things and I think that that's definitely happening at a grassroots level I can't say whether or not that's really filtering up to the people that work at the top of the chain mm -hmm. obviously it's important that that does happen um, there are a few uh, sort of recent studies about diversity in literature um, that we're linking to in our resources page on our website um, Rethinking Diversity um, is one report which is really interesting, which was led by Anamik Shah. And um, before that, um, Melanie Ramdarshan Bold also led a study, I think that was with the, through the Book Trust, um, about the representation of um, people of colour in children's literature. And um, that definitely, like these kind of statistics coming out a few years ago, really did see things improving. Um, but in my last conversation with Mel, actually, it was really interesting that she was saying it's been two years and we're starting to just see that decline again. Right. And that's what we obviously don't want to see. Um, and I think it depends on the publisher. It depends who's leading the team. But I think we would say, you know, yeah, we need more diversity actually within teams and certain publishing houses, at least, are being really transparent and they're sharing their statistics about, you know, who's getting hired and who's getting promoted. Um, and I think we're learning relatively quickly about what's happening within publishing houses. I think the representation of disabled people in, in books and who's writing those perspectives is something that we still don't have uh, much information on. And certainly there's far less research into disability representation than probably anything else. It's, it's quite hard to find that at the moment. Right, and, and Eva, what do you, what's your thoughts on the situation? Um, I kind of think that you know, as Julie said, there's been an awful lot of talk around diversity and inclusion and not enough action. And I think people really need to just put their action where their lip service is, you know. Um, we've, we've had enough talk and, it, and like Julie said, it's been years and it's slow and things are now declining. So um, there really needs to be much more action. Um, and I think that's partly why with Inclusion Guide, we just we really wanted it to be something that was practical yeah. and that people could easily implement. So when the Inclusion Guide's out there, there's no excuse anymore, you know? It, it, all the information you need is there for you to implement it. And I think we kind of need that more across the board um, throughout the industry, obviously not just about events access, we need practical, real change. And I was going to ask you, without giving any spoilers to the guide, but what else could and should be done, do you think? Or is that too big a question, perhaps? 
Oh, there's so much, isn't there? I mean, we, I think we've probably, we've got different kind of bugbears <laughs> um, as well as similar ones about the industry. Like, yeah, I, I'm particularly interested in, in yeah, that, like who's getting the permission to write disabled stories. And that's something that I'll be speaking about at another event at the, at the festival. But um, it's, it's interesting what gets commissioned you know how well researched for example some books are where you, you know you typically see quite often someone writing a disabled character but it's told very much through an able-bodied you know or non-disabled um, perspective and it's not really very authentic um, we have seen you know in the last couple of years again there's been more of a push to actually commission disabled authors um, and for example um, you know Elle McNichol is a really like brilliant, you know, success story of a neurodivergent writer who's who's won several awards for her children's books, um, and who repeatedly throughout her life was told, "You can't be a writer if you're neurodivergent or autistic," you know, um, and I think the attitudes are slowly starting to shift. But yeah, I think that for me, there's a sort of question about you know commissioning bias. Who 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 decides what's commercial and what sells? You know, as a as a querying writer myself, I've been certainly finding a lot of the process of being an emerging writer very ableist um, in the industry, and there's more barriers than there needs to be. So I'd say that's definitely something that needs to change. Well, Julie's given her bugbears ever. Have you got something that you'd like to mention? Yeah, I mean, Julie touched on it, but it is basically that we're just sick of the disability tropes that we see in literature. Um, you know, I mean, inclusion of focus on events, access in particular, but disabled people across the board are just constantly so sick of seeing really ableist tropes in, um, in mainstream literature and, and people thinking that that's okay. And it has an effect on our life. Like it, it loops back when people read about the ex supposed experience of disabled people in, in these books, they kind of project that onto what, and onto like real disabled people and to what they think your life is, you know? Um, so we we really need the industri industry to step up and stop publishing those damaging narratives and writers need to stop writing them, you know, you do a lot better. And you may have uh, answered this in part already, but celebrating inclusion is part of the Business of Books series of events, as you mentioned. And I'm interested in your thoughts and experiences of that side of publishing, the, your experiences from a writer's point of view, in particular of the business of books um, ever, if you would like to answer that. Yeah, um, I've had a kind of mixed experience, I guess. Um, I tend to find the publishing industry quite opaque. And I've heard a lot of other people say this too. Um, like the business side of it is just seems kind of mysterious. I mean, from the point of view of a writer, um, but I think kind of throughout, um, it, it can be kind of hard to get a grip on the industry and who does what. And, as, as a writer, I've always kind of said that I think agents and publishers should have like a kind of welcome uh, info pack available for, for writers when they first join, kind of covering all sorts of things to do with publishing, um, including various buzzwords and things. Um, instead of just, you know, because there are a lot of things I find out about accident, you know, maybe via Twitter, via other authors who happen to tell me something, you know, it, like it shouldn't be like that. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've had a really great experience actually um, with my recent publisher 
Angry Robot, who took on Hell Sands, they did have a, a kind of info pack that they sent me through, which was actually pretty great. Um, it was really nice to see that, but but there were still some gaps. You know, I've been in a writer in the industry now, and you know, for about five years, there's still some gaps in my knowledge. And there's definitely a bit of a thing where I feel like, oh, I should know that. And you're a bit hesitant to ask questions and stuff. But um, I did my um, my publicist, Caroline Lamb, has been great. I've been asking her a lot of questions and, and she's been really good at filling me in on the process of things. Um, and also Des, the publishing assistant, they've been really great, really easy to talk to. Um, so that's really helped. But yeah, the industry is quite opaque. Yeah. Did you kind of feel like once you're with a publisher and they take the manuscript off your hands, there's almost like a, right, we'll see you later when the book comes out and everything's taken away? Well, I think I think it's more that um, they maybe think that you know what the process is. So I think what would be really useful um, for publishers to do is to have a timeline, like give you a document that has a timeline. So what's what happens like each month and the lead up to the publication you know from you you've been signed to lead up to publication and beyond a kind of timeline of what will happen and also a bit about what's expected of you and what you should expect of them i think that would be extremely useful and would save a lot of back and forth and angst and things um so i i don't know why this doesn't already happen or doesn't already exist in the, in the industry i don't know well, Julie, you've done a bit of both. You've been on both sides. What's your thoughts on the matter? Oh, yeah, it's funny being on the inside. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's definitely a, you know, a very pronounced sense of us and them. You know, we're the publisher, they're the author. You know, they're we get the manuscript and then we're kind of, yeah, like um, it's just about managing the author um, and a lot of times. And, you know, I haven't actually like worked in publishing houses and trade publishing for quite a few years now. <laughs> so let's hope that's maybe changed. Um, but I think that for me, yeah, I would love to see, you know, that I would love to see the industry change its perspective on how valuable authors really are. Like this industry, does not exist without us without authors without our art you know it's become very exploitative particularly in the last 20 years in terms of you know what the the income that can be generated i think a lot of publishers have cast the net far and wide and there is a question and a conversation going on that i'm aware of sort of in the wider community about quality versus quantity potentially being being a point of discussion and Obviously, there's celebrityism going on as well. Everyone's a fan and all the money, you know, kind of like gets directed there for, for marketing campaigns, etc. Um, and I think that it would be really nice if publishers could start to look at authors as their teammates, you know, because you have a dialogue that it's ongoing. You know, your author wants to give you the best work. You know, the publisher wants the best work from the author. And ultimately, the more involved and informed the author is, the better chance they have of you know helping to market their book and generate more sales and like we give typically we give and you know it varies but you know there's a kind of standard out there of like oh a book a year for a lot of writers and certainly a lot of my friends as well and that feels like a lot of pressure and then you've got like a three-month campaign window and like the book is out and then boom it's on to the next one and there's this kind of feeling of chasing the debut forever um and I think that you know it'd be really nice if publishing could refocus on longevity of a career and actually 
building something long-standing um, with authors and certainly with inclusion we are doing work or we're starting to do work where we're kind of now in communication and contact with for example the UK Disability Network so that's the network on the publisher side of things for disabled employees and we are starting to kind of form a collaboration with them about kind of joining the gap, like bridging the gap, I should say, um, between yeah, the, the producers of the art and the people that take it and care for it. It's really interesting you say that because I've been thinking about this. I think a lot of my favorite books or maybe the most successful books of the last 10 years or more, whatever, have been ones which have really, that relationship is really strong, that the publisher really champions the writer and uh, you'll meet someone from the publishers at the event that they're doing, or uh, they'll they'll be in contact with you that someone direct, often with smaller publishers who clearly, you know, maybe don't have as many uh, writers that they're looking after. But even with bigger ones, you know, that, that relationship seems to be key and seems to produce perhaps better books at the end. Whereas some, if there's, if you're putting out quantity, as you say, and there's only a few editors at your publishers, then the, the whole process is not going to be as thoughtful yeah. as it should be, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that, yeah. And it's interesting, uh, Julia, that you spoke about um, uh, celebritism, because you have got another event at this year's festival, as you mentioned, which mm -hmm. is Writing for Children, Diversity and Inclusion. And I always think that market is the one where celebrities have really kind of jumped on board. Uh, children's books and everything but can you tell us a bit about the event and um and what a what you're going to talk about at it yes so um yes i'm in conversation with my fellow children's author Az dasu um who's an incredible writer um and we are yeah it's been chaired by uh, the society of children's book writers and illustrators and that's oni and yvonne uh, who are chairing the event and the discussion that we're having is essentially about that idea of who has permission to write what identities you know and, and there's obviously been such a huge amount of um controversy controversy sorry um in the industry in the last few years about yeah misrepresentation of protected characteristics and marginalized identities basically um and i think that people are wary now and quite afraid and are seeking permission can I write you know a disabled character in my book um, and we've obviously fallen into a, a sort of era of policing people as well and kind of forcing people into a corner about coming out about certain parts of their identity maybe which isn't great um, and that's taken a massive toll on many many writers mental health whether they you know a lot of people have dropped out of the industry because they can't hack it Twitter is just like a <laughs> um yeah a shooting ground it's it's um it's pretty it can be pretty um bitter on there and i think what we're trying to do is basically show writers that it can be done well it can be done sensitively you know there's talk in the industry about the value of the sensitivity reader and if you are trying to step into a character whose experience isn't your lived one then you know you can do your research you can speak to people of that identity um, and you can obviously your publisher can pay sensitivity readers um, to make sure that it is in fact an authentic representation in your novel um, and particularly the work that um, AS does um, is that and that's with Inclusive Minds um, is that she now um, promotes and sort of encourages people to look at um, diversity ambassadors rather than sensitivity readers 
so that you've got somebody of that identity working through the actual writing of the novel. It's not just, an, it's not like once it's done and it's like a check through, um, which helps it to be a bit more of an organic process. And that's, you know, that's great. Um, for me personally, I think that it's very difficult for example, if you're trying to, you know, walk step into disabled shoes to really understand what that is like. Um, but I, I would never say that someone couldn't do that. I think if they are well researched, then, you know, they should be able to. Um, and also, I would massively encourage any writer to make their book diverse. I don't think that, you know, for me, I don't know, I just think our books should reflect society and whoever may be picking up our book you know wherever it's published it could be UK wide it could be globally you know it's always good to have an awareness of um you know trying to reflect back the readership at them even if your own experience might not be as diverse as that you certainly can make um good efforts I think at doing that in, in our work. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting it's a side I hadn't thought about getting other people involved at different points of of the book being written and do you think children's books is a better situation are, are people kind of getting there quicker than perhaps um other other areas of fiction it's tricky i don't know and <laughs> um, there's a lot of authors doing it right for sure but there are certain authors maybe bigger names who are still putting out damaging tropes particularly around disability and people of color or, or global majority writers and i think that there has been enough noise now that i think publishers are are really super cautious um you know obviously everything that happened around kate clanchy as well i think people now kind of get the point that there's ways and languages that just should never be used and like depictions of people that yeah shouldn't shouldn't be in there and part of the conversation that we're going to be having at that event is you know where is the line because this is all pretty much a gray area and you know where, where do we draw the boundaries of whether this is actually something that's accurate and true to somebody's experience or whether it's just a complete you know misunderstanding and sort of stigmatized association of a certain identity um I do think that, um, for example, a publisher who I really admire and think they're getting it right in Kidlet is Knights Of, who are the people that publish Elle McNichol, who's the neurodivergent author that's um, been really successful. And she's now, her book's now getting adapted into children's TV. So it can, it can be done. <laughs> and Eva, you've got a, a new novel coming out later in the year, uh, Hell Sands. Um, what can we expect from that? Yeah. I've got that here, the final copy. Um, for listeners, it's um, a yellow and black book with uh, Hell Sands and a very big bold type. Um, and I'm I'm really excited about that coming out. It's out 11th of October with Angry Robot Books. Um, so I'm excited to unleash that. Um, so that um, Hell Sands is basically, it's, it's set in a fictional UK and Hell Sands itself is a ubiquitous, ubiquitous typeface and it's used by the government and it's everywhere. It's on documents, on hoardings, on shop signs, street signs. And the majority of the population, when they see it, they experience a kind of bliss, um, but there's a minority who are allergic to it. And you know, repeated allergic reactions make them very ill and can also lead to death. So the, these Hell Sands allergic um, or HSAs or sometimes called deviants in this society, 
Um, some of them live in the city, but most are um, kind of shut away in a ghetto on the outskirts of the city. And the book kind of follows two main protagonists. The first one is Jane Ward, and she's CEO of the company which manufactures the Inix, which is a cyborg kind of doll-like creature that essentially kind of replaces mobile phones as everybody's kind of little assistant. Um, and she's Jane Ward is basically like really successful, quite arrogant, and um, she kind of persecutes the hill sounds allergic until she falls ill with an allergy herself and her life kind of spirals out of control. Um, and the other protagonist is Dr. Eco Smith, and she's secretly working on a cure for the allergy, but she gets caught up in various government machinations and then Jane and Eco's lives kind of collide in the third part of the book. Um, and the book's in three parts, and the first two parts of the book, um, one told from Eco's perspective and one from Jane's perspective, and you can read either of those sections in an order of your choice. Well, you said earlier on that it's very different from Goblin, your previous novel, and it sounds like it's very different from Goblin. Yeah. But I'm, I'm also interested, since you said it was five years since Goblin came out, and having a book published now, have you noticed differences good or bad in the publishing industry over those years? Um, in, in general, in a, like, do you mean in yeah, terms of process, access? You know, you're, you're just the process of, of working. I mean, you said that you've got a, 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 your new publisher kind of gave you a welcome pack that had more information that you maybe didn't have previously, which is a positive thing. I'm just interested yeah. in, in the, if the whole process, I guess it might change between publishers anyway. But, you know, because it was a few years ago, I thought maybe the, the process of getting published might have changed. Yeah, um, well, I had a slightly rocky and um, kind of difficult start anyway with Goblin because it was originally published by um, a publisher that um, collapsed, um, imploded um, quite dramatically just before Personally, Goblin had been printed and was available and out in bookshops and stuff. Um, but that was a pretty difficult situation for myself and all the other authors of that publisher. Um, so that that wasn't probably very indicative of, right. of yeah. the kind of usual debut. Um, but Goblin was then rescued by Saraband's Books, which was amazing. Um, so that was great. So that kept Goblin out in the world. Um, but yeah, my experience with Angry Robot has actually been really wonderful. I've been kind of singing their praises. Um, they've been really good at communicating. Um, as I said, Caroline Lamb, the publicist, has just been fantastic to work with, as has Des, the publishing assistant. My editor, Simon Spanton, has just been fantastic and a real champion of um, Hell Sands, and he's been great to work with. Um, just all the staff have been fantastic. And like, like I said, I had that kind of info pack, which was helpful. Um, communication's really good. Yeah, I've just, I find working with them brilliant, actually. And Julia, I have to ask if you've got something out that you'd like to tell us about. Um, I, I have a novel that's complete, which I'm querying, or just about querying. I had to put it uh, on the back burner <laughs> for the last two years, really, to focus on inclusion. Um, during which time I managed to do a kind of extra revision on it that I've been wanting to do. Um, so yeah, I'm just kind of entering into, so I've had a few conversations um, at this point 
Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a young adult contemporary novel that looks at my experience, uh, my lived experience of being a young carer um, and sort of it looks at mental illness and disability and it's a dual um, POV point of view um, novel and it's set in the US as well. So UK uh, publishers and agents, I think, aren't, aren't massively keen on UK writers setting things in the US just in terms of the way that territory sales work. Um, mm -hmm which is another interesting one. But um, luckily it's it's been shortlisted for a few awards and I've just been longlisted for another one this year, which I'm really grateful for. Um, and yeah, I'm gonna be after um, inclusion launches, hopefully focusing on completing my uh, poetry collections and having, again, very delightedly won my first writing prize last year, which was the Aurora um, writing prize for uh, one, of, one of my poems, so. Yes, it's, it's very much a kind of watch this space with me right now. <laughs> but it sounds like there's a lot to look forward to. And before we leave, um, I just wanted to know uh, if there was anything coming up at this year's festival that you were particularly looking forward to ever. Is there anything that jumps out of the programme to you? There's a lot in it. I yeah. Guess. <laughs> yeah um, no, it's a great programme. Um, I think I only recently um, got round to reading my first N.K. Jemison. Um, it was A Hundred Thousand Kingdoms and it just blew me away. I absolutely adored it. And um, I'm looking forward to reading more by her, but yeah, she, she'll be appearing at the book festival. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Um, there's a few other events I'm excited about as well, although they're not quite as accessible as I'd like, as I don't think they're live streamed or being recorded for online later. Um, but Ali Miller will be there. She's a good friend and also her book, The Last Days, about um, being brought up a Jehovah's Witness and, and the kind of cost of leaving that is a really searing, insightful book. Um, and I think that conversation will be really brilliant. Um, and also horror writer Mariana Enriquez has her um, debut novel. She's um, been famous for her short story collections. Her debut novel is out and, she, and she'll be um, beamed into um, the art college at Edinburgh Book Festival. So I'm looking forward to that as well. And, and of course, PG Harvey is going to be there, which is exciting. So yeah, a lot to look forward to. Absolutely. Uh, and Julie, yourself, is there anything you're looking forward to? I second Ali Miller. I'm so excited about, about that. Um, I'm reading Last Days at the moment and it's just incredible and resonates quite a lot with me. Um, so definitely, yeah, I would encourage people to check that out. Um, the, another um, event that's part of the Business for Books strand uh, is a spoken word showcase of Scots spoken word poets. So um, being a poet myself, I'm really interested in going along and hearing what's new and who, who's, who's got what to talk about. Um, I think uh, Grey Crosby is going to be um, performing there and I've seen them once before in person a few years back um, at a showcase that we both did at Lighthouse Books and I have oh I've, I was so blown away completely like I just can't I'm so excited to see them perform again um yeah I'd like to jump in and say Grey's brilliant yeah. yeah yeah totally awesome they're brilliant um and I think as well Elle McNichol's going to be there actually on the 25th the same day that we are so definitely for the kidlet side of things we'd recommend people to go and check out um Elle's event and Nikesh Shukla is also um going to be appearing at some point I think 
can't remember the dates, but he's doing creative writing workshops and I've sat in on one of his memoir writing workshops and he's a friend as well. And it, it, he's just brilliant and a great talent. And um, yeah, he this year had um, a creative writing sort of guide book um, published, which is fantastic. And last year he published his memoir, Brown Baby, which is just such a brilliant read. So yeah, um, there's, there's probably far too many events than we'll actually be able to go to annoyingly. But yeah, those are probably my topics. Fantastic. And if I can do a little plug, we are having a spoken word podcast where I'm going to be talking to some of the artists involved in that event as well, which I'm really looking forward to. Thanks to both of you for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a fascinating chat. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. It's been great to chat. Uh, yeah, thank you, Alistair. A pleasure and all the best. Yeah.